Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Should Hamilton rethink the Tiny Shelters pilot project? We also discuss the Green Belt, of course, as well as the Grey Cup Festival, a new book from a former Ticat star, Ontario's poor procurement process, and why we are all watching talks with the big three. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We get some good interaction usually on the text line or the email, but the phone line is wide open for you to comment on this tiny shelters pilot project on Strawn Street here in Hamilton. As we know, there was a meeting that was scheduled for Monday, never actually took place because, well, the city said it's unsafe. There were verbally and physically aggressive people and they shut it down even before it began. But I want to know how you are feeling. Is this something that you think should be done? Should we have this tiny shelters pilot project to figure out whether or not this can be a long-term feasible initiative? Maybe not necessarily on Strong Street, maybe somewhere else. 905-645-3221. That's 905-645-3221. You can call or text that same number. You can send me an email, rick at 900chml.com, or, or head up on our uh, Twitter feed, at am900chml, at Rick Samprin. Are you for or against the Tiny Shelters Pilot Project on Strawn Street in Hamilton? Do you think the city should just scrap this thing? Because the consultation process wasn't, well, done properly, do you think the city should revisit this? Do you think one of the councillors who approved this plan initially, should stand up and say, you know what, maybe we should give this another look-see. And reverse course. 905-645-3221. Talk or text. You can email rick at 900chml.com or head over to the Twitterverse slash x at am900chml. Kelly has called into the program. Kelly, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm okay. For or against this tiny shelters plan going ahead, where do you stand? Uh, I'm against, for sure. And why is that? Uh, I happen to live within 15 meters of the site. I have many residents who are friends who live 17 meters from the proposed site. And so this is too close for comfort for you. What are you concerned about? I think something that requires 24-hour security does not belong in a residential neighborhood. Would you be... Sorry, given the... Um, the things that have been happening at encampments. The HATS team has said they don't check for weapons, which I understand, but then they cannot guarantee anybody's safety. Would you be okay with this being set up somewhere else in the city, or do you think this idea is just plain wrong wherever it's going to be stationed? I understand the city wants to try it, but on principle, I don't agree with it. But... I would support them trying it elsewhere that's not in a residential neighborhood. All right, Kelly, I appreciate uh, your call in and your thoughts on this topic. Thanks. 905-645-3221. Where do you stand on this tiny shelters pilot project? Listen, I've, I've gone on the record. I've said I'm, I'm for this thing. You know, it's not across the street from my home, which I think many people are thinking, well, as, as long as it's not in my neighborhood. And I said, I'd be okay if it was in my neighborhood, not necessarily across the street, though. Because there are some concerns, and I think some legitimate concerns. And not necessarily just about those who are would be living in these tiny shelters. We saw earlier this week violence at a an encampment site in this community. And sadly, it appears, at least in this case, that this person 
was singled out for being homeless? I mean, where are we going? 905-645-3221. Talk or text. Email rick at 900chml.com. On the Twitterverse, at am900chml. Got an email from Darcy who says, So, can someone explain how a counselor can schedule a neighborhood meeting, but not show up to his own event? You should have been there an hour before it started to make sure everything was being set up properly. Then 45 minutes after the meeting was supposed to start, he says he was not informed or informed not to come due to safety concerns. It was his meeting. He's the one who came up with it and scheduled it now himself and Andrea, in reference to Mayor Andrea Horvath, are posting about threats and violence at an event they never laid eyes on. Other than a couple of loudmouths and residents sat and stood patiently waiting for some kind of meeting to start until they were escorted out of the building by security and police. This is in reference to what happened on Monday night. This is totally inexcusable, says Darcy, and looks like Cam and Andrea never had any intention of attending this event. Cam being Councillor Cameron Crutch. Uh, along also having our bags searched and our umbrellas confiscated for a neighborhood meeting was a little much. Do they think we are criminals in this story all the parks and our streets have turned into war zones. That's just some, some of the sentiment out there. How people are feeling about this, this process, the, the, the lack of consultation, having these tiny shelters, in, in Kelly's case, right across the street, meters away. I understand the frustration. It is real. The anger, the, the fear. It's all encapsulated in this project, and it boils down to whether or not this city is going to Pull the plug on this. It's the focus of our poll question of the day at AM 900 CHML. Should the city reverse course and cancel this pilot project with the tiny shelters? Yes or no? You can vote now on our Twitter feed. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. City Council voting to investigate yesterday a potential challenge of the Ford government's removal of some of the Greenbelt lands uh, in this city. This is a a responsible way to determine whether there is uh, an option to move forward to uh, uh, to force uh, to force the government's hand uh, in terms of reversing where we are now. That is Mayor Andrea Horvath. Legal staff now going to look into whether or not this is feasible to ask for a judicial review of the province's decision, which obviously is going to come with a hefty cost to taxpayers. What that dollar figure is, we don't know as of yet. And this all comes as another public meeting is going to be held later on tonight in Ancaster to discuss this Greenbelt issue. And this meeting was originally set to be held at the Ancaster Memorial Arts Center, but because so many people came out to the last one, and public consultation is really top of mind in this community for, uh, well, in, in regards to a number of issues, this meeting tonight has been moved to the Ancaster Fairgrounds, and it starts at 6.30. Here to talk about it is the counselor for Ward 12 in Hamilton, Craig Kassar. Craig, good morning. How are you? Good morning to you. I'm well, thanks. What's your expectations of tonight? Well, as you kind of alluded to there, we're expecting a big turnout. Uh, We did uh, not have enough room at the Ancaster Memorial Arts Centre last week. So expecting a lot of people and expecting people to be expressing their opinion. And that's the whole point of this. Uh, We are allowing constituents to share their opinions. uh, We're the only level of government and it's actually doing that. And so why is that important? Why is it important to hear from the public on this topic? Well, I've had people tell me that they don't generally get involved in local politics or politics in general. They don't have lawn signs. But on this issue, it struck a chord with them, as it has with many, many people across the city. So it's such a big issue. It's really important that people feel heard. And we're doing that to the best of our capability as a municipal government. 
with the goal, of course, of making the provincial government listen and change course. So what have we been hearing from residents right now? Well, in short, it's no development on the Greenbelt. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that sentiment will continue, uh, which begs the question, will will this message ultimately be presented to the province to say, listen, you know, we're overwhelmingly against what is going on here? Well, we already have as a council uh, passed a motion requesting that the lands be returned to the Greenbelt. And it's been covered, well covered in the media. Uh, this forum is another opportunity for that message to continue to get out. Uh, you just mentioned uh, the judicial review. We passed the motion yesterday. So we are looking at all options here because this is such a big topic and it is so important to citizens of Hamilton, residents of Hamilton, that we are doing everything possible. Just a couple of years ago, when uh, the expansion of the urban boundary was happening, there was over 18,000 surveys responded that the city put out and over 90 percent were in favor of a frozen boundary. So this is just a continuation of that same theme, just accentuated. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Ward 12 Councillor with the City of Hamilton, Craig Casares. We talk about tonight's Greenbelt public meeting. It starts at 6.30 at the Ancaster Fairgrounds, and uh, everyone is welcome to attend and voice their opinion for or against what is happening with uh, the local Greenbelt lands. You mentioned the judicial review. We had uh, Councillor John Paul Danko on the show yesterday, and he brought forth the motion to ignite this process and, and, and uh, you know look at the feasibility of doing such a thing. Where are you on this? Will this move the needle any anywhere? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I don't know definitively, but since the Auditor General's report came out and the Integrity Commissioner's report came out, it's really shone a light on this process. And a government can make decisions. You know, that's established. That's what they're there to do. But it's the process that we're challenging here. And it's been well covered in the media that the process uh, was not following guidelines and protocols and public consultation. So we're just going to pursue all the opportunities available to us on behalf of the citizens and residents of Hamilton because that's what they want us to do. You brought up the process. The city of Hamilton has kind of been caught in, in between a rock and a hard place in terms of this tiny shelters pilot project and the, the, the lack of consultation that the public has kind of you know carried with them. Were mistakes made? Do you see an appetite at City Hall to maybe reconsider this plan? Well, we've been trying to find a way to make this plan happen for well, well over a year, certainly the entire term and, and I think before that. Um, you know, we're coming up in winter, so time is of the essence. I know that there's been feedback from the community that there wasn't consultation ahead of time. Uh, I think, as Councillor Kretsch had pointed out, uh, we found out about it just before it was announced by staff. And there's reasons for that, because to go through consultation uh, before choosing a site would have really delayed things. So they're trying to just make things happen as quickly as possible in order to have somewhere for people on the streets to be. So, yeah, it is not perfect. Nothing really in municipal politics is perfect. We're just trying to make the best decisions possible. I can only guess, given what we've seen and heard already, you know, there's a lot of negativity on many sites, really, that were chosen, not just this strong linear park site. And and the answer you probably would have gotten from everyone in, in the community is, hey, just, you know, build it, but not in my neighborhood. And that that's... That, as I said, is that rock in the hard place that we find ourselves in. Yeah, it is. And, you know, uh, residents have every right to express their views on and, you know, their quality of life and how it may be affected. But as council, we are looking at the bigger picture. And whether it's on hats or it's on where we build, we're looking on what's best for the entire city.
And it's your belief that this pilot project will continue? Well, uh, as far as I know, it is at this point. Councillor Kassar, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Craig Kassar is the City Councillor for Ward 12 here in Hamilton. That brings us back to our poll question of the day today, which revolves around this pilot project. And we're asking you straight up, should the city reverse course and cancel this tiny homes idea? You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Tickets are now on sale for the 2023 Grey Cup Festival in Hamilton. We know the Grey Cup is going to be waged at Tim Hortons Field on November the 19th. The festival leading up to the big game, a ton of events. And there are a handful of those events that you can get tickets to right now. Here to talk about it is Jerry Fonso. Jerry is the general manager of the 2023 Grey Cup Festival and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jerry, good morning. How are you? Morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. So we have four events right now that we can scoop up tickets for. Maybe we'll start with one of the favorites that all fans have, and that is the Team Party Headquarters. What's in store? There you go. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a staple when it comes to the Grey Cup feature. And uh, when you find yourself as a visitor visiting the city for a few days, you're, you're bang on. So from that perspective, the, uh, the, the Team Party Headquarters, that will be located at our Hamilton Convention Center. And the uh, and the studio that's connected to where First Ontario Concert Hall is. So, it's a uh, it's a three day pass, um, great price, one oh nine, including taxes and fees, and basically can kind of get you right into the uh, into the building, gets you into every party across the board. So we're talking about the you know eight of our CFL team parties, uh, as well as the Atlantic Spooners. And that is always one of the highlights because that's where fans of every team get together, whether they're going into Tiger Town or, uh, you know, Stamps House or whatever the case is. But then they also mingle with each other as well. And that's that's part of the fun of Grey Cup Week. You're right. It, it doesn't really matter what jersey you're wearing and it doesn't matter which party you go to. Obviously, some of the teams or some of the fans obviously are attracted to their own teams. But a lot of them, they just kind of almost like bar hop where they go from one party to the next. They see friends and they mingle with you know, other uh, Great Cup visitors. So it's it's great. It's great when you see it, all the the fans just getting together. So it's a, it's a great evening. And obviously, like I said, it's a three-day pass. So um, a lot of fans kind of come and go as they please throughout the, uh, throughout the weekend. Another big uh, highlight and tickets up for grabs on this as well. And you can get all the information online, greycupfestival.ca, the CFL Alumni Association Legends Luncheon. One of the highlights of the week. What do we have in store for this one? All right, so uh, the alumni luncheon here is, uh, so that's Friday, Friday, November 17th, uh, from 11 to 2 p.m. This will be hosted at the Unistation. Um, these tickets as well, so they're 170 including your lunch, uh, taxes and fees. And like you said, it's an opportunity to mingle with the alumni. In most cases, actually, depending on the number of seats you purchase, we'll have an alumni sitting with each table. Um, and before and after, it's, it's a great opportunity that if you're that kind of true fan, that hardcore fan, you know, there's going to be tons of alumni. You're talking about 70 to 75 alumni in the room, shaking hands, providing autographs, you know, an, an opportunity to mingle and actually have some real conversations with some of your favorite players. Tickets on sale now for four events up until this point at the Grey Cup Festival. More events and tickets will be unleashed in uh, the days and weeks to come. And we're in discussion with Jerry Fonzo, the general manager of the 2023 Grey Cup Festival, which of course will be here in Hamilton in November. The cheer extravaganza. What's going on with this one? Ah, the cheer extravaganza. Again, another... Another uh, traditional event that every year we work closely with our cheer teams. Uh, this one will be at the First Ontario Concert Hall. These tickets are $25 per ticket. 
Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. And we strategically chose that time on Saturday, which is right after our Santa Claus parade. So Santa Claus parade will happen in the early afternoon. Right after that, everyone can kind of walk over and check out the cheer extravaganza. So in this case, the cheer extravaganza includes all nine CFL teams. Um, and we've also, just to make the show a little bit of a, a longer show, so we're looking at a two-hour pack show, uh, we are going to be including nine local dance groups as well, so 18 in total, and uh, I think it will be a great feature for those dance fans. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That sounds fantastic. And lastly, but not leastly, the Caretakers game day warm-up. So is, is Bob Young doing some calisthenics or, or throwing the ball around? What's happening with this one? Well, Bob Young will make a presence. He definitely will uh, come by <laughs> and say hi. So in this case, it's uh, it's kind of our hosted party right across the street. So you couldn't get any closer to Tim Hortons Field to host a, uh, a kind of pregame tailgate. So in this case, it's a 2 p.m. till 5 p.m. Um, as a purchaser, you have the opportunity. Obviously, it's indoors, an opportunity to stay warm. You heard this last home game. We had uh, Dwayne Gretzky performing in front of uh, the entire stadium, 24,000 fans. Uh, where this case is going to be more for that intimate 1,000 inside Bernie Morelli, which will be which will be amazing. So in this case, these tickets are 219, including uh, food, taxes, and fees. Uh, but I think it will be a great feature for those that want to stay a little bit warmer in the pregame, but still get down to the stadium early before they cross the street for the game itself. When it comes to the the price point, we know that the cost of living is a major issue nowadays. Um, w- how seriously was it looked at in terms of making all these events affordable? Because, you know, I'm looking at the prices thinking, wow, these are good deals. That, uh, you, you named it, uh, Rick. It's, that was the plan here, is how can we make sure that they are affordable? We understand people obviously are already investing in the ticket itself, possibly investing in hotel stays. So we wanted to make sure that these events, we can sell through them, no problem. Fans, every fan can get down there, and they can pick and choose. We understand not every fan's going to attend all four of these, but we all know that, there's, they're going to go through and pick the two or three that are their favorites, and if they can line up a third one or something like that, that'd be amazing, right? So, and this is just the four we're announcing at this time for the general public, and we're hoping that we have uh, maybe two or three more kind of coming in the next two weeks. That includes the CFL Awards, the Arena Concert Series. Last one for you, right. we got about a minute. I know there are some hardcore CFL super fans, and I can name three of them. Uh, Andrew Nielsen, Steve Townsend, Anthony Frazina, they have accessibility needs. What are the plans in terms of ensuring accessibility is a priority with the Grey Cup Festival? Yes, of course. So the good news is most of these facilities, or actually all of these facilities, are very current. So not worried about it, obviously, when it comes to um, the convention centers and our concert halls. So we're working very closely with these higher-end venues. It's come up. We've actually spoken with Anthony as well, just to get some other feedback from 2021 as well, just to make sure that everything's great. And then everything in that way, I would say, is accessible because we also have the... um, you know, Super Crawl that we just experienced this past weekend that was put on by Tim and his team, which was a great one. So we're looking forward to hosting that as well, which is obviously along James Street. So, yeah, all that type of stuff taken into consideration for sure. That is fantastic to hear. The 2023 Grey Cup Festival is going to be here before you know it. Get your tickets now, greycupfestival.ca. Jerry, thanks for the time. Thanks very much, Rick. Have a good one. You too. Jerry Fonzo, the GM of the Grey Cup Festival. That's going to happen before the big game on November 19th. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a, it's going to be a celebratory day and evening tonight because former Hamilton Tiger Cats all-star offensive lineman Jason Riley has written a new book and it comes with a very important message. 
The book is called Taming Mad Dog, and it's going to be released officially tonight at an event at the End Zone Bar and Grill on Main Street East from 7 until 9 p.m. Here to talk about it is the man and the legend himself, Jason Riley. Jason, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Rick, and good morning, Hamilton. <laughs> why why write a book? What, what propelled you into this path? Uh, you know what? I was hoping you were going to ask that. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I've always enjoyed sharing stories, you know, both listening to and, and telling stories uh, about life and about football. And, and uh, that's part of what life's all about, connecting, you know, with others through storytelling. Um, over the years, sharing stories with family and friends and uh, former teammates, um, you know, people would say, well, why don't you write a book? You know, you've got a lot of, int- you've had an interesting life and you've had uh, done a lot of interesting things in your football career. Um, so I, you know what, when I retired from teaching in 2019, I set a goal that I was going to write a book after retirement. So I sat down and then of course COVID hit, right? <laughs> so, you know, I had some time on my hands. So every day after, after my chores were done, uh, I sat down at the computer and it became like, uh, you know, an office job almost. And, um, it was very, it was, it was actually very rewarding. I recommend it to everybody. It's, it was very rewarding in the sense that, um, to write the book, it, it allowed me to reconnect with old friends from childhood that I hadn't talked to for years to corroborate stories. Um, and then also reconnecting with family. It, it, it encouraged me to, you know, um, contact family and uh, talk about the old times that we shared growing up and things that you forget uh, until you talk about them uh, with family members. And then it, it, it kind of sparks a memory and then it sparks a story. And then the, the, the details kind of start to fill in when you're writing about them. And it's very cathartic, right? And then also, the, uh, probably the most fun was reconnecting with old teammates. You know, um, uh, the, book, the book kind of evolved over time. And, and uh, at first, uh, uh, you know, the first kind of climax in the story is winning the Vanier Cup with UBC in 1982. And uh, we beat Western uh, here in Toronto. Uh, in in here in Ontario in Toronto, um, I, I didn't want to put down Hamilton there because I'm a Hamiltonian ever you know ever since we've been out here. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know it was it was an amazing trip to come out here and uh, uh, that story that story is in the book the whole the whole thing about you know the team coming together after playing for t- four years together and then winning the ultimate uh, Canadian University Championship that story is in there. And uh, I connect, reconnected with a lot of my old teammates from university. And then, of course, uh, my CFL experience is, is uh, another climax in, this, in the story. And uh, my experience coming to Hamilton when Al Bruno brought me into Hamilton. And uh, I sure owe a lot to him. And that, his, his um, picture is on the cover of the book. And I, I actually texted you a picture of, of the, the book covers mm-hmm. so you could see it. Because I know you, you're not going to see it probably till tonight. But... Um, that, that was an amazing story, the ultimate uh, championship in 1986. So that story is in the book. And then, of course, uh, afterwards, you know, um, Al, Al went to McMaster and brought me in as the offensive line coach at McMaster University, and I ended up coaching there for over a 25-year period. And we won the Vanier Cup in what a lot of people call the greatest uh, university game ever played on Canadian soil, mm-hmm. and that was the 2011 Vanier Cup in my hometown, in, in BC Place in Vancouver. 
right? My old hometown, Hamilton's yeah. my hometown now. Lot, lots of amazing stories in this book, as you've just retold a few of them. But there's also, as I mentioned, an important message in this book. What is that, and why was that important to you? Well, uh, you know what? I, I wrote 500 pages in the original manuscript, and it just wrote about life and about football. And, uh, you know, then, then I had to find an editor to kind of put it, you know, put some parameters on this and kind of give me some direction because I'd never written a book uh, before and of this nature. I have written a, a children's book in the past. But anyway, um, my, uh, my editor, Jennifer Sharman, uh, who I hired to edit the book. She's, she's fabulous. Um, uh, she read that when she read the original manuscript, um, she said, you know what? We need a theme other than football. The, the football stories are, are great, but we need a theme. We need a theme to bind the book together. And you were bullied as a child. And I was very, I was a very little guy when I was, when I was young and I didn't hit my growth spurt till I was about grade 10, uh, in, in middle school. And, uh, you know, when I was about 15 years old, but up until then I was, I was quite small. And in grade eight, I wrestled in the lowest weight class in the, on the team, 115 pounds. And, uh, as a result of my size and my goofy looks, I had a goofy looking, they used to, you know, mock me and say, smiley Riley. Cause I always walked, I didn't have the sense to keep my mouth shut because I had all crooked teeth. My teeth were all, it was like, you know, if you know what chiclets are, I, I don't know if they still have chiclets, but you <laughs> yeah. know. I, I, you know, I, I looked like a, I was walking around with a, a mouthful of chiclets and they're all pointing in different directions. And I, I didn't have the sense to keep my mouth shut. So I was always smiling because I was, I was, you know, basically a happy kid. I had sure. a great family, but I was mocked incessantly because of my, my teeth and, and because of my goofy look and because I was small. And, and I always found myself being bullied and, and, I always, and sticking up for myself. And I, you know, I had to, had had to fight my way out of a lot of battles. So I, I you know, um, and the fact that we moved, we, you know, the other thing is we moved a lot because my dad was a victim of fraud in a, in a major uh, deal that he, he was, he was he stationed over in London, England during the war. And uh, when he, when he came over, he became a very successful uh, in the car, in the car industry. And somebody got a hold of him that was a, a con man. And, um, Actually, t- we, he he had dual citizenship, and he went and took um, the young family that my my older brother John had been born up here in in Scarborough. They went to they went to California to set up, and he took his whole life savings and put it into this new business down there. Wow! And the guy ripped them off for everything he had, and uh, and so we're we were poor. Absolutely. You know, when I was born a month after, my sister was born in California, and I was born up here back here a month later after they got back. And then in the meantime, the whole the cargo uh, bay that that they put all their belongings in that they had whatever they had left they put in this container to send back to Canada and it got lost and never never found. So My they gosh. got back they had nothing. What that is crazy, big. and that's one of the many stories you're going to hear when you pick up the book Taming Mad Dog tonight's End Zone Bar and Grill. Jason, congrats on writing this book. Looking forward to reading it myself, and uh, we'll see you down the road. Have a good one. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it very much. Thanks. Jason Riley, former Ticats offensive lineman, McMaster football coach, and now an author of the book Taming Mad Dog. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce has released a policy brief, which has some key recommendations to spur procurement in this province. It's called Power of the Purchase Order, Modernizing Public Sector Procurement 
in Ontario. Here to talk about it is Claudia DeSanti, the Senior Manager of Policy at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Claudia, good morning. How are you? How are you, Rick? Thanks for having me on. I'm good. Thanks for coming on today. First, let's set the foundation in terms of what is happening now from a procurement perspective. So Ontario's public sector spends nearly $30 billion every year buying a very broad range of goods and services from businesses. So everything from pencils to complex technologies like cloud computing or vaccines. Um, And so that spending has a big impact on our social and economic outcomes, of course, as a province. Um, But the province typically tends to focus on getting the lowest possible price rather than the best possible value. Um, And so that $30 billion is not spent in the most efficient way and it's not giving taxpayers the best value or the best outcomes at the end of the day. Um, And the other challenge is that for businesses that are participating in procurement, it's not very attractive because the contracts are very risky. uh, There's a lot of red tape involved. And so we're not um, fostering as much competition or participation in the process as we could be. And uh, again, Ontarians are worse off at the end of the day. So there's a big opportunity here to modernize procurement and get better value, uh, get better outcomes. When we think about our healthcare system. It's uh, facing certain challenges. Um, We can't necessarily just double the spending overnight, but we can get a lot more value out of what we do spend. Uh, Well, it sounds like the the plan is in place to make this much more efficient and cost effective and, and just better. And I know there are 23 recommendations within this report, but there are some key recommendations, and I believe there's three of them that we should point to. What should we be doing? How do we make this process better? There's a lot that needs to be done, and it won't be an overnight fix, but there are a few uh, low-hanging fruit and simple things that can be done, and we see that this is done in places like Europe and in the States, so uh, there's a model for us to go off of. One of them is to implement value-based procurement. So rather than looking for the lowest possible price, civil servants should be empowered to look for long-term outcomes, and you can do this with clear I think we may have lost the Zoom feed with Claudia DeSanti. Claudia, you still with us? A culture shift in government rather than encouraging and incentivizing uh, budgets to be reduced. We need to be encouraging and empowering civil servants again to to think more long term. Um, it's really interesting when you look at examples in Europe, one way that they foster that culture shift is to uh, give actual awards to people that are procuring for value. Uh, so there's, there's interesting ways to incentivize it. Um, the second piece is to uh, really build uh, more uh, of an attractive model for businesses because um, you know, you think about indigenous owned businesses or, you know, uh, green businesses, different diverse businesses that we want to be part of our supply chains. Um, they often tell us that it's not even worth even attempting to participate. Um, a lot of the challenges there are at the local level, for example, um, there's a lot of hurdles. There are uh, registration portals, documentation, uh, fees, and it's all a patchwork of different systems. So there's a lot that can be done to streamline the process, make the contracts less risky, um, and just attract more small and local businesses to participate. Um, And then the third piece is uh, collaboration between the businesses and the, um, and the, the, 
procurers, whether that's government or a hospital or a school board on the public sector side. Uh, so right now what happens is the government will just issue a contract or a proposal and, uh, and, and that's it. The businesses will bid for it. That leads to a bid for the, the lowest possible cost. It's sort of a race to the bottom. Um, but what we see in other places is that there's a process at the beginning in which they're talking about what are we trying to achieve here? What is the pos- best possible outcome? Um, and that's really important when you think about something like uh, AI technology uh, or something that is moving very quickly and the government can't necessarily wrap its mind around it. Uh, it needs experts at the table at the very beginning. Claudia DeSanti is the Senior Manager of Policy at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. We're talking about a new report that has a number of recommendations that would spur procurement in this province, make it a more efficient, more cost-effective, more valuable proposition. Uh, and just going back to attracting investment, I know the Premier has touted, you know, Ontario is open for business. We have signs welcoming people to the province with that phrase. Uh, But it doesn't sound like those who are coming here are really incentivized to make that investment because of the hurdles that you've talked about. It's not. And it's a longstanding challenge that uh, predates this government. So it's not um, it's not really to blame any one administration, but it is a big challenge. And when we talk to multinational companies that have um, investments in many different jurisdictions, they're the ones who tell us. Ontario is an outlier. You look at other places, it's much easier and much more attractive to participate in bids. Um, So we're losing out on investment um, because those companies are saying, it's not worth my time, I'll invest elsewhere. You mentioned this is not going to happen overnight. How long would this take? Well, uh, Supply Ontario is an agency that the government created back in 2020 to uh, modernize, centralize procurement, find efficiencies. uh, And they were stood up with the uh, intention, you know, started pre-pandemic to save the government money. Um, that was process was put on hold during the pandemic, as many things were. Um, but they've released this year a three-year business plan, um, and they're looking by 2026 to start modernizing procurement across different types of goods and services. So within the next three years, we're hoping to see some progress. But they're rightfully starting with very basic goods like uh, you know pencils and laptops, and then when they move into complicated things like technology. We're expecting that to take a few more years beyond that. Um, We need to make sure we get it right beyond uh, doing it quickly. Uh, But the pandemic put things on hold. So hopefully we'll see some movement soon. Yeah, hopefully so. Claudia, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks, Rick. Claudia DeSanti, Senior Manager of Policy at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, telling us about some uh, big-time recommendations and good ones at that to spur procurement in this province and get this economy chugging. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, the deadline is looming for the big three U.S. automakers and the United Auto Workers Union to come to an agreement, and it's not looking good. 146,000 UAW workers in the state set to walk off the job tomorrow to back their contract demands. Reporter Justin Finch explains what the union demands are and why its leaders feel they can ask for it. United Auto Workers President Sean Fain addressing the rank and file, saying the union is making some headway in talks, but isn't budging on key demands, including a 40% wage increase over the next four years, arguing that's how much the CEOs have gotten since the last contract. The most recent SEC filings show all of the big three CEOs 
CEOs earned more than $20 million last year, with GM CEO Mary Barra topping the list at $29 million. And that salary is roughly 362 times the average pay for a GM worker. So you can clearly see the frustration. And here's another wrinkle to it. Will the negotiation tactics that are being used in the States prove useful for Canadian auto workers who are in the same boat? Marvin Ryder is a professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Marvin, welcome back to the show. How are you? Glad to be with you. I'm fine. Are we expecting a full-scale strike in the U.S.? It sounds like it. Yeah, so if you don't mind, maybe put a little context in this for people. The UAW is the union that represents those 146,000 workers. And what they do in the United States is they negotiate with all three of the big three simultaneously. In other words, they're talking to Ford and GM and Stellantis or Chrysler all at the same time. Generally speaking, what they're looking for is a big wage increase. Uh, They would like, I think it's a $20 an hour raise immediately once they sign the contract, and then $5 a year over each of the next four years. Uh, So right now, the average GM assembly line worker earns $32. By the time this is done, they might be earning as much as $70 an hour. Now, uh, all three contracts expire tonight at midnight. So by this time tomorrow, they could be on strike. Having said that, each of the big three companies have put wage wage increases on the table, but just not in that league. Uh, In one case, for instance, it was $12 an hour increase and then $3 a year over four years. Um, So it will be interesting to see how this goes. In Canada, the union does it a little differently. They pick one of the big three and they target them first. So in this case, it's Unifor that is the name of the union doing the negotiations, and they've targeted Ford first. It's unusual, by the way, that both the Canadian and American unions are negotiating at the same time. But in Canada, what we do is once we get a deal with one of them, then it becomes the template for the deals they try to negotiate with the next two. In Canada, they do want a significant wage increase, but they're also looking at some pension changes, and they also want to get some more guarantees around electric vehicles being made here in Canada. So they're two quite different agreements and two quite different set of tactics involved. So if the UAW decides to pull the trigger on strike action as of tomorrow, what kind of ripple effect is that going to have? Well, there's two things you'd want to watch. The first is, of course, that the automobile industry between Canada and the United States is highly, highly integrated. So if they go out on strike, if these 146,000 workers all go out on strike, then within days perhaps as early as Monday, maybe by Wednesday of next week, Canadian plants would suddenly be shut down because they wouldn't be able to get the parts they need to assemble the automobiles here in Canada. So there would be a dramatic ripple effect that way. But the other interesting question is whether an American strike could be used successfully as a bargaining tool by uh, by Unifor here in Canada. In other words, since uh, they're not all negotiating, can we say something about the Um, uh, attitude of Canadian labor people that they don't immediately go on strike, that they still want to talk, that they still want to deal. Even if a contract were to lapse, they still want to keep the negotiations going. It is possible that if the Americans take a very, very hard line and Canada chooses not to, there could be benefits for us in these negotiations. 
Is there also the possibility that if the UAW does go on strike, that Unifor would face a little bit of pressure to follow suit or at least maintain a more hardline stance in terms of what they want? Yeah, you would think that, but oddly, the two unions have gone down quite different paths. Once they separated and said, no, we need a Canadian auto workers to negotiate for Canada, you have the Americans there. To, to give you another quick example, in the last round of negotiations, now that was three years ago, the Canadian union worked very, very hard about getting those guarantees around electric vehicles being assembled in Canada. That was just not an issue in the United States. And you might have wondered whether the Americans would be happy about this to know that you know, rather than having all those electric cars made there in the United States, that some were coming to Canada. So the two unions have tended to go down different paths. Now, there should be some consistency. But again, given a different environment, given different exchange rates, no one looks for exact same parity on these things. Uh, so there is some uh, individual freedom here in the negotiations. We've got one more minute. I'd always, I always found this fascinating and why Unifor, which is representing Canadian auto workers, um, picks one of the big three and then, uh, you know, uh, uh, enters into contract negotiations. Why not go after all three like is happening in the U.S.? Wouldn't you have a little bit more leverage? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. But the flip side of this is that they think they they carefully pick who it is they're going to go with first, and they pick the company they think is in the best place to give them what they want. Mm. So in this case, they think Ford is a little bit more willing, has had a little bit more success, is not as struggling as much as some of the others, and they think they will give them what they want first. And then once Ford, if you will, caves in in the negotiation or gives the union what it wants, then the pressure goes up on the next one, most likely GM, and then on the last one, and then Stellantis. And we've done them sequentially, and it has worked very well for the CAW. I'm actually surprised the UAW doesn't do the same thing. Uh, it's really odd that you'd negotiate three contracts simultaneously. Conceivably, you can get three quite different agreements before you're done. This seems to lead to the same agreement for all. Always great insights from Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, thanks for the time today. Glad to be with you. Marvin is a professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, always with some excellent insight into what is happening in the business world. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.